Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. I read the story of two Americans in Paris. Not the movie. No, two Americans in Paris. True Americans in Paris. And they were touring the city of Paris, and they had uh, worshipped back home in a shopping mall. You know, they had one of those strip centers, and that's where they worship, worship God there. And so they were really fell in love with the ornate buildings, with the, the beautiful auditoriums, the beautiful cathedrals that were in Paris. And they particularly fell in love with the Cathedral of Notre Dame, you know, the one that burned down last year. They just loved it. And as they walked in the building and they looked at how magnificent it was, and, you know, they came to a particular stained glass window in there. And one of the guys said, he said, wouldn't it be great to sing the modern praise choruses in this building? And then he said, I wonder where they put this, the screens for the projector. Now that little story illustrates a truth that we deal with in contemporary society. It reveals many of the struggles that we have uh, in, in, in the churches where we are. You know, how do, how do we take, how do we move the church to communicate the gospel in a way that a newer generation will hear it? Uh, what do we do? And of all the issues that have confronted the church today. None or create more opposition. None are more divisive than that of music. Uh, I don't know why that is, uh, but it's music. And it's, it, so therefore, it, it's a difficult subject for us to talk about. It's difficult to talk about it in, in the church. But just because it's difficult does not mean we should not talk about it. If you know anything about me, I am not afraid to tackle hard subjects. I'm not afraid to tackle them. Because why? We preach the whole counsel of God's Word. We don't pick and choose to make you feel good. Can I just tell you something? I'm just going to speak off the cuff here. I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm not here to do that. I'm here to present you a Word from God and help you fall more in love with Him. That's what I'm here to do. So, having said that, that was off the cuff. That was free. You don't have to pay for that. Uh, you know, so, but if you want to slip a five to me, I'll make, sure it gets to the, I'll make sure it gets to the church, okay? Not to me. Anyway, the thing is, it's, it's a very difficult subject. And the thing about, we, we know that authentic worship is more than music. We talked about that last week. We know it's more than that, but music is important. Music is, is, is central to a lot of what we do. So I think our passage for this morning is relevant as we talk about this idea of authentic worship. Because I think in, in many ways, we are guilty of making worship into something it was never intended to be. I don't think we've done it intentionally. I think it's just something that has morphed over time and has become something that probably doesn't resemble what we really should be doing. I don't, you know, it's just something we haven't done intentionally. You know, it's, we, maybe we've gotten comfortable. And maybe we've gotten comfortable the way we've always done it and we've missed out on what God really means. I know in my own worship experience, I said, yeah, my worship has evolved over 45 or 50 years. It's, it's evolved. It's changed as I've, I've experienced God differently in different cultures and different venues. Uh, my whole idea has changed. Uh, so we're going to look at this passage today in Psalm 95. 
Go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 95. We're going to read the whole psalm. And we're going to look at this and we want to see what does God's Word teach about worship. That's really what we want to know. So we're going to look at these words this morning under the heading, How to Experience Authentic Worship. Notice what God's Word says. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock, under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. First truth I want to give you. To experience authentic worship, we must recognize the object of our worship. The object of our worship, I'm just going to cut to the chase, the object of our worship is God. Aha moment, it's God. Look at what the passage has said. Look at verse 1. It says, Sing for joy to the Lord. Shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Verse 2, come before Him. Verse 2, extol Him. Verse 6, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Every way you look at it, worship is to Him and to Him alone. We don't worship individuals. We worship God and God alone. However, this might surprise you. That is not what the majority of people think. If you, if, when you take a survey was done recently by Gallup, he's a Gallup, uh, not Gallup, Barna. Uh, Barna did the, the survey and he's uh, the leading scholar or the leading statistician for evangelical Christianity or for Christianity in general. And this is what he said. When they asked people what is worship for, 47% of the people that attend church said it's for their personal benefit. 29% said that the worship is focused on God and 25% said we don't know. We don't know what worship is for. However, when they polled those same pastors of those same churches, 71% of the pastors said worship is for God and God alone and to draw us closer to Him. God and God alone is who we worship. That's who we are to worship. Our worship is to be God-centered, not man-centered. Our focus should not be on how worship makes us feel or even on how we worship. Our worship must be centered on God and God alone. If we look at the book of Psalms, the Psalms, I don't know if y'all know this, there's 150 Psalms. Did you know that the Psalms is the hymn book of the Hebrew people? So if we want to know about worship, let's go to the hymn book. Let's go to the Psalms. Did you know that 75% of the Psalms speak directly to God? Directly to God. And another 15% encourage the people of God to praise God. So 90% of the Psalms are God-oriented, God-centered, God-focused. So it's the Hebrew Psalm book. And this is what this tells me. 
that the Hebrew songbook is focusing on worshiping and, and, and praising God. It's centered upon Him. So this is what it tells me. It tells me that the people of the Old Testament who were under the law knew more about worshiping God than those of us who are under grace and have the full revelation of God through Jesus Christ. They knew more about worship than we do. We do. God is the object of our worship. In verses uh, 3 and 4, he tells us why. Specifically, verse 3, he says, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. So he uses it in general terms. He says he's sovereign. He's sovereign over everything. And then he gets more specific in verses 4 and 5. Notice some words he uses. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, and so is the dry land. You get the point? Everything belongs to God. He is the creator of everything. It all belongs to him. And not only did he create it, the Bible says that he sustains it. That if it wasn't for God, everything would fall apart. Everything would erupt into chaos into confusion because God holds it all together. So not only the work of his hands that, that, that we worship him because of the work of his hands but because everything is in his hands. So because he is our creator God he's also the rock of our salvation. Our worship is to him and to him alone. Second truth. To experience authentic worship we must recognize the proper attitude of worship. David, the psalmist, talks about the object of our worship. Now he moves into making sure we have the proper attitude in worship. And David mentions two attitudes that are to exist in worship. And he uses a lot of verbs to, to express this. The first attitude we ought to have is one of rejoicing. We see this in verses 1 through 5. Look at verse 1. He says, come let us sing for joy. That phrase sing for joy could very well be shout for joy. Then look at what he says in the, in the second part of verse 1. He says, shout aloud. So th there's a joyful, uh, there's a joyful expression in worship. God is longing for us to enthusiastically worship Him. And a matter of fact, enthusiasm, if you look up the Old Testament word in, in the Hebrew, it seems like the central characteristic of worship in the Old Testament is exhilaration. Is exhilaration. Now we know how to get exhilarated. Uh, we know how to get exhilarated. We get exhilarated when our Baylor women beat Connecticut in Connecticut and end a 98 game win streak or home win streak for them. We get exhilarated when our Baylor Bears men beat Kansas University for the first time since 1966 in men's basketball. And we get excited and we get enthusiastic and we tweet it. Woohoo! Sick them Bears! We sick them. We get excited. Exhilaration. We get excited. Well, apparently, that same thing that we do, exhilaration, excitement, in basketball games and football games, we're supposed to do in worship. Amen. We're supposed to get excited. We're supposed to be exhilarated in our worship. The Bible says, sing for joy, but then it also says, shout for joy, and then it also says, shout Aloud, And that word shout aloud literally means raise a shout. That's why when uh, we were talking about the worship service, and Aaron and I, we text back and forth, and I said, hey Aaron, you know what song I think would be great with my sermon? I said, how about raise a hallelujah? He said, I was thinking the same thing. I, great minds think alike. I don't know why we do, you know. But uh, well, great minds think, raise a hallelujah. 
Raise a hallelujah. In the midst of the trials, we raise a hallelujah. But this word that's used in the Hebrew, it was used when the Israelites were anticipating a battle or celebrating a triumph. They were anticipating a victory already. This is a word used in Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. Look at it on the screen. When the trumpets sounded, the people shouted... And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, same word, the wall collapsed. This is the same word that is used in Second First Samuel chapter four, verse five, when the Israelites are bringing the Ark of the Covenant back from the the Philistines. This is what it says: It says, "All Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook." Shook. You know what that communicates to me? It tells me, get this, that when we worship, we should bring down the house. Amen. That when we worship, it ought to shake. We ought to be grumbling those windows when we shake, when we sing, when we worship. Scriptural, right out of God's Word. Can you believe that's in there? Our worship shall be so expressive, so vibrant that we rattle the windows. That's why we ask you to sit up close. In the second service. I know some of you still resist it. Oh, you just want to resist it. You just want to sit on that back row so bad it's calling your name. But we put those little things out to mark off. The, why do we do that? Because we don't want you singing solo. We want you singing together because it lifts up a higher volume when we sing closer to one another. That's why we do it. It's also to create community. To get you, you might have to sit by somebody you don't know. Oh my goodness. Oh, they might breathe the same air as me. I cannot believe it. You might have to reach out and say, Hi, my name is so-and-so. What's yours? I don't think I've met you yet. And then get this. Then you might be able to say, Hey, can we get lunch together afterwards? You know, Dutch, if you want to, okay? It'd be better if you paid. But that's all right. You don't have to. The point is, that's why we get you to sit closer. We want our worship to be louder. It's louder when we're in unison than it is we're all off singing solo. We can't hear us. You know, I don't know why. I don't know why our worship is not as exhilarating or as exciting as it should be. I don't know why sometimes mine's lethargic and dry. I don't know. Maybe it's a cultural thing. You know, maybe it's because we're Americans. You know, maybe it's just because we're in a rut. Uh, maybe we're just not very expressive in general. You know, maybe it's because we don't have much joy. Yeah, I don't. I, for me, I'm going to be a little bit more expressive. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit more enthusiastic in my worship. At least I'm going to try to be as I focus on God and, and Him alone. I don't know why we're often critical of others whose worship is a little bit more animated, a little bit more enthusiastic than ours might be. Now, I think there are some, some parameters that you have to set. I think you can go too far. I don't think we want anybody you know, crawling on all fours and barking like a dog. Uh, you know, that, that might be a going a little, a little excessive. Uh, you know, I think there are some extremes to avoid. But let's be honest. Very few of us come even close to being that, uh, to being that passionate. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Our tendency is to react like Michael to David's joyful enthusiasm in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let me just refresh your memory of that little story. You don't have to turn there. I'll kind of walk you through it. David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. 
to create a permanent home for. As of yet, the temple had not been built. But David's bringing the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark is a symbol of God's presence. It's a symbol of God's blessing upon the people. Uh, there's nothing, nothing in itself that says God lives in the, in the Ark. It's just a symbol of His presence. So they're bringing it in, into Jerusalem, and they're having a worship experience. And the Bible says in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, that David was bringing the Ark of God into the house of into the city of David with rejoicing. He's rejoicing. Then it goes on and it says in verse 14 that he was he danced before the Lord with all his might. Obviously he was not a Baptist. He danced before the Lord with all his might. Who did he dance before? The Lord. Okay, we just want, okay, we're on the same page here. I just want, and the same Bible as mine, right? Dance before the Lord with all his might. And then it says in verse 15, it says, they, they brought the ark up, ark of the Lord, with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Sounds like a pretty good, pretty good thing. But then it says that Michael, who was the daughter of Saul, who represented the old kingdom under King Saul, Represented that. Michael looked out the window at David. And the Bible says, not my word, she despised him in her heart. She had contempt for David. So Michael confronts David when he get, gets up. Oh, you have, how dignified you've been. Basically what she's complaining about, David, you embarrassed me in front of the other people. That's, what, that's really what it was. You've embarrassed me. And this is what David said. I said, I, I love it. He said, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. And then he said this. I love it. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. In my own eyes. David says, Michael, I don't care what you think. What I care about what God thinks is what he's saying in that passage. You see, our attitude in worship should be one of joy. It should be one of enthusiasm. We should have joyful gratitude for what God has done in our lives for us and what God is going to do through us. When God himself penetrates our life in such a way that we become consumed by a desire to worship him, we cannot help but break out in the joyful praise. We can't do it. But there's another attitude we ought to have. We're to have the attitude of rejoicing, but we're also supposed to have an attitude of reverence. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Now we are called to, to worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. There's a change of tone. It's now turned to reverence and humility. It's went from praise to prostration. In verses 1 and 2, we're told to stand in His presence and give Him glory. We're to stand in His presence and give Him praise. Now verse 6 says we fall on our face before Him. And we humble ourselves before Him. And it's, that's the essence of worship. You're getting low before Him. It's what it's all about. So worship revolves, 
rejoicing and reverence. They're both there. Not only has the focus changed, but the mood changed, but the focus has changed. No longer is it God our creator who we are worshiping. Now it is God our redeemer and God our savior. We are now the, his flock. He's now our loving shepherd. And because of that, it calls us to bow down and we kneel before him. And getting low before God is the essence of worship. Humbling ourselves before Him is the essence of worship. We accept our role. We accept our place. Uh, we accept our place before Him. But we also acknowledge His place before us. We are His servants. We are His people. He is God. Amen. God alone. And we all bow in His presence as our Savior, as our Redeemer. I read a story of a man who went to an art gallery. And as he made his way through the art gallery, he, became to, he came to a particular painting of Christ being crucified on the cross. And he was drawn to it. And, and the beauty uh, of, of, of Christ on the cross. And as he was looking at it, he's meditating on it, a guy came in and said, Lower. The artist told you, wants you to look at this from a lower perspective. So he scooped down like this. And he looked. And he saw new beauty in the portrait. New beauty in uh, the, the paint strokes and everything that happened. And he said, lower. The artist wanted you to get lower. So he gets down on one knee. And he looks at it and the picture comes alive. The portrait comes alive and he can see things he did not see before. Suddenly, the guard takes his light and he says, lower. The artist meant for you to be lower. So finally he got down on his knees just like this. And he looked up, and it's only there that he really saw the beauty of the painting. That is the essence of worship. That is the essence of worship. Getting low before God is the essence of worship. You see, our worship services should contain elements of rejoicing and elements of reverence. They should contain elements of praise and elements of prostration. They should carry elements of shouts and elements of silence, elements of happiness and elements of holiness, elements of rejoicing and elements of reverence. Why do we do that? Because that is the biblical design. That's the way God created it to do. We always say in seminary, I told y'all last week I went, I just want y'all to hear it again. I did go to seminary. And they said that one of the things we do in planning a worship service is all the music focuses on God, but it begins to draw us closer to God, the closer we get the sermon, so that when we get to the sermon, we are ready to hear from God. So worship takes us to the throne room of God. We exalt, we get praise, well, we are worshiping Him, and then we are bowing down in His presence, and we're saying, God, now I'm ready to hear from you. What is it you have to say to me? We've said what we wanted to say to him. Now it's time for him to say what he wants to say. So they always say, this is old school. And I hate to go old school on you. The music sets the table for the sermon. Because it's in here that we're going to hear from God. Hear what God wants us to do. What God has for us. That's the biblical design. One more truth. To experience authentic worship. We must recognize the obstacles to our worship. We talked about the object of worship. We talked about making sure we have the right attitude. But there are obstacles to our worship.
They're all obstacles that keep us from experiencing genuine worship. Look at verse 7, the latter part. He says, today, if you, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the past. He goes on and describes that past. God warns the people of Israel through David. He warns them of the danger of having a hardened heart. And then he gives two biblical illustrations from the Old Testament. Let me refresh your memories of these just so you can kind of understand the context here. You know, the Bible tells us the things that happened in the past are there for our benefit so we can learn from them today. So in Exodus chapter 15, there's a wonderful worship service for the, uh, uh, for the uh, people of Israel. They've come across uh, the Red Sea and they're having a worship celebration. Three days after that worship celebration of coming across the Red Sea, they are groaning and they are complaining to God because they don't have anything to eat and they don't have anything to drink. So God provides for their needs. He says, I'm going to give you something to eat and I'm going to give you something to drink. Two chapters later, uh, we find in Exodus chapter 17, the people are grumbling again. This is just, just a, a few weeks later. They're grumbling again. And, and Moses goes to God. He says, God, what am I going to do with these people? What am I going to do with them? And Mo God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to strike the rock. I want you to strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, water will come up. And I want you to do that. So... Moses did that, rock came out, the water came out, and God provided the water. And he said he named that plate Masa and Meribah because that's where the people grumbled and complained against God. That's what they were doing. They were grumbling. Matter of fact, they were grumbling at God, but they were really grumbling at Moses. And this is what Moses said. I can't believe this is in Scripture. Moses said, you're not really complaining to me. You're complaining to God. It's what you're doing. So, Fast forward, 40 years. 40 years later, they've, they've been wandering in the, in the wilderness. They're about to enter the promised land. Guess what they do? They start complaining and griping and grumbling because they don't have any water. So Moses and Aaron bow themselves for God. They lay themselves on the ground. They prostrate themselves before God. And they experience the glory of God. And God comes to Moses and Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. To speak to the rock and water will come up. But Moses, by this time, he's had about enough of these angry Israelites he can handle. He's had, he's been 40 years I've put up with these people. And so instead, in his anger, he strikes the rock not once, but he strikes it twice. Now water came out. Water came out. But then God said this to Moses. He said, Moses, he indicts him. He said, Moses, because you have embarrassed me in front of my people, you will not experience the promised land. You see, in, in the first one, the people rebelled. In the second example, the people rebelled and Moses rebelled. And so David comes along under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this, these experiences of Masa and, Masa and Meribah, they, they reveal a common problem. When things do not go the way that we think uh, think they should go. We are all prone to grumble and put God to the test. When it doesn't go the way we think it should go, we begin complaining, we begin griping. 
Each of us has this tendency of demanding of God as we try to coerce Him into satisfying our wants and satisfying our desire. So we try to manipulate God. We try to coerce God to do what we want Him to do. Now look, it's not wrong to ask God for help. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But we better be careful about our complaining attitudes. And just like Israel, just like Israel found this out, our grumbling proves our lack of trust in God. That's what it proves. We don't really trust you, God. So because we don't trust you, we're not going to do this over here because we don't really believe you, God. We don't trust you. Listen, these are historical events. These are historical events, but they are there to expose a deep-seated, recurring tendency to have a hardened heart. That's what they are. Notice in the passage it says, as, as you did at Meribah, as you did that day in Masa in the desert. That word as indicates that it is a Masa-like attitude of heart that God despises. He hates that attitude. He hates that type of heart. Let us not be guilty, my dear friends. Don't, do not let us be guilty of hardening our hearts. Because if we harden our hearts, we will not experience authentic worship. It will not happen. God, listen, God is not pleased with a hardened heart. He's not pleased. And when we have a hardened heart, it hinders our ability to have authentic worship. God wants us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's what he's looking for. He wants us to have an intimate relationship with him. That's what he desires. God is looking for authentic worshipers. That's what he's looking for. Let me ask you a question. Have you hardened your heart to God? Have you hardened your heart? Have you placed an obstacle between you and authentic worship with God? Do not let the externals of worship keep you from the internal experience of worship. Here at Western Heights, we want you to have an encounter with the living God. We want you to draw into His presence where you experience Him and all His holiness and all His glory and you leave His presence changed. Changed. To live more like Jesus, to be more like Jesus, to work more for Jesus. But that will not happen when we harden our hearts. It will not happen. And you can see what, what happened. God became angry with the people. He became angry with them. He said, they are not going to experience my glory. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. God is looking for authentic worshipers. And it is my prayer. It is my hope that we will embrace the holiness of God and we will rejoice and we will be reverent, but we will give Him authentic worship because that's what He deserves. He deserves our best from our heart.